We invite you to take your copies of God's perfect word and open to Psalm chapter 1. Psalm 1. I ask that you turn there at the risk of familiarity. This is a very familiar song that many of us know really well. Some of us could probably quote this song. It's short, succinct, to the point. I want to focus tonight and ask you to focus along with me on the truth that is found in this familiar word and the implications that it has for our lives because I believe that it's drastic. Let's read Psalm 1. We're going to read the entirety of it, six verses. Psalm 1, verse 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's open our time in God's word with prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us to see your word in a new light this evening. As we open to a familiar text and examine what it means for our lives today, I pray that you would convict us of sin that needs to be convicted of, and that your sun would shine brightly this evening. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. My wife and I are in the midst of a um, really fun but frustrating process right now. We are kind of casually and slowly shopping for our first home. And uh, immediately when you start shopping for a home, you start to look at different features that every house has. And so we've gone through this, gone through several houses, and you, you see these different features that stand out, and, and you start to do an interpretation process of the different features that each house has to offer. So one may have new carpet, and another has appliances that are included, and Another one has a finished basement, and another one has a garage, and you start to, start to look at these features and interpret them and try to decide what's going to fit best for, for our life. But one of the things that's been incredibly frustrating through this process is that I've begun to realize that some of the most important features in a house are things that I can't necessarily immediately interpret. As we've found some of the houses that we like or dislike, we start to notice specific features in these houses that, that we like, but then there's also things that, that we just don't know about. There's so many unknowns. So there's issues with the foundation. There's issues with the roof. There's issues with a house being 50, 75 years old. There's issues with potentially resale value. I, I, I don't know enough. I'm becoming aware constantly that I don't know enough on my own 
to make a good decision in buying a house. And so how this process works is you start hiring people to tell you what you need to know about buying a house. And, and this costs money. And buying a house, the biggest thing I've learned is that it's not cheap. And as I'm signing away, like 30 years, it's terrifying to me to make such a significant decision on so many unknowns. These, these different features in this house, these houses that we're looking at, they're significant, significant. And if I were to know enough to, to examine and know about all of these features, they would be able to reveal to me down the road like what the fate of this house will be. If I know enough about what I'm looking at, if I can interpret these features in the right way, then I'm going to be able to tell what this house is going to be a good decision, if it's going to be a bad decision. But where this becomes dicey is when I just don't know. Well, well, in Psalm chapter 1, what we're going to look at and what I believe that the emphasis of the psalmist here in this psalm is, is that there are features in, in, in every individual that reveal what the fate of that individual will be. There are points that you can examine in each individual, features in each individual that when you look at them, they tell you what that person's fate is. And so in Psalm 1, what happens is that the psalmist is going to contrast two different types of people. The man who is blessed, the righteous man, is going to spend the first Three verses looking at the righteous man, and then he's going to spend the last two contrasting that righteous man with the wicked man. And he's going to zoom in on the features of their life. And through those features, will reveal what their fate is. Really interesting passage. When you, when you look at it and when you understand what the psalmist is pointing out here, it's almost as if we could say that in Psalm 1, he is telling us how to test whether or not someone is a child of God. Look back to the first three verses. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of the sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. In those first two verses, the psalmist reveals features in this individual's life. And in verse 3, he, he reveals this person's fate. He will be like a tree, firmly planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. So tonight, what, what, I, what I think is going to be beneficial for us is to take this same structure that is found in this psalm and spend our time this evening contrasting the righteous man, the blessed man, and the wicked man. So we're gonna walk through this passage tonight starting in verse one and the first thing that starts to jump off the page is the righteous man's features. The characteristics in the righteous man's life that stand out and reveal his fate. So the first feature of the righteous man is his influence. His influence. And when I say influence, I not mean so much his influence on others as much as the way that others influence him. First feature of the righteous man is his influence. Verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. First emphasis that the psalmist makes here is that the righteous man 
is not surrounded by unrighteous people. The terminology that's used here is, is an individual, blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The counsel that he is receiving, the people that are influencing him are not wicked individuals. Now that word wicked, when we hear that immediately, we probably have some connotations in our mind. When you think of like a wicked individual, we think of someone that's like way off the deep end. The word wicked here refers to someone who is not under the covenant of God. It refers to someone who is not a child of God. It refers to someone who doesn't do what the righteous man does. So, so the first kind of sign, the first feature of this righteous man is his influence. He does not heed the advice of sinners. He does not stand in the way of sinners. He does not sit in the seat of scoffers. So immediately, it's interesting. This is the first psalm. Think about this. The, the book of Psalms is a songbook. Open up your, your hymnal to verse one and verse verse of the first song says, blessed is the man who does not spend his time with sinful people, who is not under their influence, who is not taking heed of their counsel. Blessed is that man. Okay, so massive implications for our life right there. Who are we surrounding ourselves with? But we have to ask ourselves, like, what's the solution? How do, I, how do I watch that in my life? Because the solution is not total separation from the world. We know this. We cannot take the gospel to the nations if we're not spending time with those who need the gospel, if we're not spending time with sinners. And the solution here, what the psalmist is getting at, is not whether or not you are around unbelievers, but whether or not you are influenced by them, whether or not you are drawn under their counsel. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. So what are our closest relationships? Who, who would you consider to be, to be your closest of friends? We, we talk about this with students all the time, that who you surround yourself with will define who you become. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians, that bad company corrupts good morals, if the most important thing about us is what we believe about God, then certainly that must show up in our friendships, that must show up in our relationships and who we allow to influence us. So, so how do you know, how do you know if you're struggling in this area? How do I know if the people that I'm surrounding myself are influencing me in a negative way? The way I believe that we can answer that question is to say, do I live as a sinner would live? Like, how do I know if I'm under the influence of those individuals? It's gonna play out in my life. How do I live? How do I carry out my life? So the second feature of the righteous man is his lifestyle. His lifestyle. This is really a different emphasis in the same verse, but if you kind of zoom in on those words, walk and stand and sit, the emphasis here is partially who they are surrounding themselves by, but partially how they are living themselves. The righteous man is righteous. That, that, that sounds incredibly simple. Sounds obvious. Yes, the righteous man is righteous. That's why he's called the righteous man. But, but when you break that, like when you start to think about the implications of that, the psalmist is writing, those who are blessed, 
Those who are blessed by God are those who live righteously. Now, we have to note from the get-go that what he is arguing for here is not a way to achieve blessing. He's not saying if you follow this list, then you will become blessed. Rather, this list reveals those who are blessed. This list is going to reveal those who have been blessed by God. So those who have been blessed, the manifestation of that in their life is first and foremost who they surround themselves with, but, but also how they live themselves. So are they walking in that council of ungodly men? Are they standing in the path of sinners? Are they sitting in the seat of scoffers? Now, th- this is a massive issue of believers living righteously. We, we talk about this the rest of the night, but instead what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna copy Aaron's sermon, Pastor Aaron's sermon from this morning and just paste it right here, okay? So, so go back this morning and listen to everything Pastor Aaron said about fighting sin and resisting sin. And th- like, that's, that's this. Believers live righteously. Those who are truly blessed live, that is manifested in righteousness in their life. The blessed man is defined by his righteousness. The third feature, third feature of the righteous man is his delight. His delight. Here's what I'd really like to zoom in tonight. Look to verse two. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight is in the law of the Lord. Now think, think about this statement. The man who is truly blessed is the one who delights in the word of God. That word delight means emotional pleasure. It's it's not a deep, difficult to understand word. It's the way that you and I would define delight or happiness. Psalmist is saying that The one who is truly blessed finds happiness in God's word. He finds delight. He takes pleasure in God's word. In the Old Testament, when a man found a woman to be beautiful, this was the word that would describe how he felt about her. Delighted in her. Remember in the book of Esther, when the king is having a beauty contest to determine who his queen is going to be, and Esther comes into the scene. There, there's several rounds of this beauty contest in the book of Esther, and of the first round, and these, these women come through, and the only people that got invited back to round two were the ones that the king felt this word about. The ones that he looked and he found pleasure in them. He delighted in them. They made him happy. They, made, they gave him joy. That ideal, that, that content is how the believer is to feel about the word of God. Finds delight in the word of God. Takes pleasure from the word of God. So the psalmist writes, the one who is blessed, his delight, his joy, his happiness is found in the, in the law of the Lord. Now that word law is the word Torah. Probably familiar with that word Torah. It indicates the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That was the law that the psalmist would have had at that point in time. 
That was the, the scripture. That was his Bible at that point in time. So think, like the psalmist is writing, he's saying, I delight, I find joy, I find happiness in Leviticus. There are many Bible reading programs that have ended in the book of Leviticus, right? You know what I'm talking about, where you're like, I'm gonna do, I'm gonna read through the Bible this year, and about March you get to Leviticus, and it gets tough in the book of Leviticus. Maybe on a good year, you're going strong, you make it to numbers. Numbers is tough. Am I, is this only me? Do you guys, are you guys with, like, th- these, these are some difficult reads, Where, where, O psalmist, where do you find joy in Leviticus? Where do you find joy in Numbers and Deuteronomy? What is pleasurable about that to where he can say, the one who's truly blessed, the truly righteous man, is the one who delights in God's law. Why? Why would you find joy there? How is this delightful? I think there's... Two primary reasons in the mind of the psalmist. First and foremost, the law. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It reveals the greatest person. Why why can the one who is truly blessed say, I delight in the law of God? Because in that law, in that law, God has revealed himself to man. God has spoken through a book to man, and man can read through the law and know more about God. Why is it delightful? Because it reveals the greatest person. You you cannot, you cannot love God and not love the revelation of God. God has revealed himself to us through his word. And so the psalmist is writing saying, I love your word because through it I have learned of you. You cannot love God and not love the revelation of himself. Remember um, the summer that I was going to get uh, two summers before I was going to marry my wife, we, she, she went on a missions trip to China and there were difficulties in communication. We couldn't talk and we were, we were anticipating marriage and deeply in love and we're still deeply in love. At that, at that point in time, we were so desperate to talk to each other and uh, remember the only, only opportunity I really had to speak to my wife was through Skype, which is a video conferencing we're, we're sitting at computers and we can see each other face to face. And I've never really been a big fan of video conferencing. Um, if you, like, like if you were going to call me and, 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 and you were FaceTiming me, you, like I probably wouldn't answer. I think that's weird. Generally, I, I, I'm not like a big fan of FaceTime or Skype or all of that. I rarely do them. But, but that summer, there's a log of, of how many hours you, uh, you, you've, you've been on a video conference. And if you were to look back at my log of hours on video conferencing that summer when it was the only way for me to talk to my future wife, it was days on end. I, I, I fell in love with Skype. <laughs> fell in love with this ability to communicate and to see and to interact with 
this girl. Because it was, Skype was like the revelation of her to me. It was my only angle at her. It was my only shot at her. And so I loved getting to know her through that. The word of God is God revealing himself to us. You cannot say you love him and not love the revelation of himself. Can't do it. That's how we know God more. And so the psalmist says, the blessed man, the one who has been blessed by God, is the one who delights in the law of God. Because it reveals the greatest person. But also I think probably present in the psalmist's mind here is also that it produces the greatest effect. Turn over, we'll stay in the Psalms tonight, but turn over to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, believe that the man who is blessed can delight in the law because he knows that it produces the greatest effect. Let's read Psalm 19. Look at all of the effects of the law of the Lord in Psalm 19, verses 7 through 11. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So in Psalm 19, psalmist here is just ranting on how great God's word is because of the effect that it has on us. He says because of, because of what it does, enlightening the eyes, making wise the simple, revealing sin, because it does these things, it's more valuable than gold. It's sweeter than honey to me because of the effect that it produces in my life. So God's word, God's word is the delight, the delight of the righteous man. The man who is truly blessed, the man who is truly righteous, I think based on the implication we see in this psalm, the, the one who is a follower of God delights in God's revelation, delights in the word. How often, how often, look, 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 at, look at what happens throughout the rest of this verse. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Fourth feature of the righteous man, his thoughts, his thoughts. In his law, he meditates day and night. The blessed, the righteous, meditate on the word of God. Now that the word meditation has erroneously received a, a bad reputation because of its association, but, but the, the word itself is biblical. The idea of meditating upon things is biblical and simply a reality. You have meditated on several things today. To meditate is to think about something, to dwell on something, to Cause something to mull over in your mind, to focus on something. So you've spent significant time focused and thinking about different things, different things all across this room. We're naturally meditators. 
We're naturally focused. Our minds are drawn to different things. The things that you have meditated on today are the things that have dominated your mind. Yesterday, I struggled with meditating on college football. We all have different things that we're struggling to meditate on, like it's a problem. The blessed man, the righteous man, his meditation is continually on the word of God. Day and night, he doesn't stop. The word of God continually on his mind, continually focusing, continually thinking about what he has read and learned in the word of God and what it means for him in his life. The righteous and blessed individual meditates on God's word. And this, this is challenging because we are inherently forgetful. We inherently struggle to force ourselves to meditate on, on what, what scripture says we should be thinking on constantly. So how do I do this? How do I go from struggling in my meditation and continually thinking and dwelling and applying the word of God? How do I go from struggling in that to doing better? Well, first of all, first, we have to be reading. Right? You cannot meditate on what you do not know. There has to be input. Uh, let, jump over to Psalm 119. Psalm 119 is probably the most significant psalm on the word of God. It's also the longest and centers around an appreciation, love, and adoration for the word. Psalm 119, verse 18, a request, a prayer from the psalmist to God. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. The psalmist here acknowledges that like sometimes it's a struggle to even open the word and read and see new things and find application. And sometimes that's tough. He prays, he says, God, open my eyes because my eyes are naturally closed. Open my eyes that I can read your word and, and adore it and love it. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. Think as we're thinking upon this theme of meditating, Memorization, memorization will help you to think upon, to dwell upon what it is that we are reading in God's word. Turn over, maybe not, Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. That verse is life-changing. I am treasuring your word in my heart. Why? So, so that I won't sin. Having God's word in my heart is going to help me. It's going to enable me in my battle against sin. Meditating on God's word, constantly processing through our mind and our heart on the word of God will help us in our battle against sin. 
To the point where the righteous man, the one who is righteous, is the one who meditates on the word of God. I have to, um, I have to place reminders in my life to be continually meditating because I'm naturally so forgetful. Whatever it, put whatever it takes in your life to drive yourself back to thinking on and dwelling upon Scripture. For that, that is a feature of a blessed individual. That is a feature of someone who is righteous. So all of these, these, these four that the psalmist talks about in these passages, these are tells. These are features that point to a specific fate in an individual's life. The psalmist is next going to reveal that fate in verse 3. A righteous man's fate. In other words, the one who, who, who is defined by these things. The one who can say that these things are true of them. Their fate, first and foremost, is growth. Growth. Back to Psalm 1, verse 3. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. First aspect of the fate of the righteous man is that he will grow. Growth is going to define him for, for a couple reasons in verse 3. First, he has in his life a continual source for growth. The righteous man has in his life a continual source for growth. Where do we get that? Verse 3, he will be like a tree firmly planted where? By streams of water. The individual described in verse 1 and 2 is someone who has a continual source for growth in his life. What is that source? It's, it's the word of God that he just talked about. Because he is meditating on the word of God, because he delights in the word of God, because that is true for him, he is planted like a tree by a river, by a channel of water. He will continually have the source for growth present in his life. More motivation to be spending time and meditating and dwelling and delighting in the word. It is the source of growth in a believer's life. If that is true of you, you are like a tree that is planted by streams of water. But note that this tree is not planted. Verse 1, it's not planted in the counsel of the wicked, in the path of the sinners, in the seat of the scoffers. It's not drawing its resources from there. That's not where this tree is. The tree is planted by the word. And therefore has a continual source of growth. This tree, it yields fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. These are terms of fruitfulness and health. In a tree's life and by implication in a believer's life. The one who is defined in verses one and two is someone who will, who will produce fruit. 
Someone who from, from an illustration standpoint, if we're talking about a tree, his leaves won't wither. Her leaves won't wither. That person will be defined as someone who is fruitful, growing, healthy from a, from a spiritual standpoint. The psalmist sums it up by saying at the end of verse 3, in whatever he does, he prospers. That's a significant statement. Whatever this person does, this person prospers. The word prosper, it means to succeed. It means to, you could almost summarize it as like, it means to, to, to win. Now this, this, this thought process of prosperity coming to those who follow God, again, has a bad reputation, and rightfully so, in the midst of the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel is a lie. But biblical truth is that God blesses obedience. God punishes disobedience. And the psalmist says that in whatever this man does, he prospers, what he's saying, what he's arguing for is that like no matter what happens to this man, whatever he does, he, he succeeds, he wins. It doesn't mean by implication that he's gonna have the most money in the world. It doesn't mean that storms aren't going to come in his life. But that no matter what happens, he prospers. Like let's carry the illustration out a little bit further. When it says that he is going to produce fruit, when it says that his leaves will not wither, that doesn't mean that a storm is not gonna come and hit that tree. What it means is when that storm does come and hit that tree, that it keeps producing fruit. When the storm comes to that tree, its leaves don't fall off because he's been planted in the water. He's been planted by this stream. He has a continual source of growth and he has become fruitful and healthy. That is the blessed man. That is the blessed woman. That is the one who is righteous. So then... Then the psalmist moves on to the second half where he gives a comparison. He contrasts this righteous man planted in the word with a wicked man. Again, that word wicked, we have lots of connotation in our mind, but that word wicked is simply someone who is, who is not a child of God, someone who is not in, in a covenant relationship with God at that point in time. And by implication, what we're going to see in this psalm is that the wicked man is the one who doesn't do what the righteous man does. The wicked man is the person that doesn't live the lifestyle that the righteous man lives. And that can all be taken from this line in verse 4. The wicked are not so. The wicked are not everything that was just described of the righteous man. There's a difference there's a clear, you look at the features and there's a clear difference between their lives. So, so quickly we can run down this list. The wicked man's features are the opposite of the righteous man's features. So, his influence. The unrighteous, the wicked, they are going to first and foremost surround themselves with other people like that. And that only makes sense. 
Unbelievers are going to surround themselves with unbelievers. Unbelievers are going to be influenced by unbelievers. Unbelievers are going to, secondly, their lifestyle, they're going to live like unbelievers. So that, 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 that second point there, the second feature in the wicked man, his lifestyle is going to be that of an unbeliever. Expect that. Expect that an unbeliever is going to live in that way, that he's going to look different from a believer. A third, third feature their delight, obviously, the, the wicked, the unrighteous, are not going to delight in the word of God. The unrighteous man does not take his joy from God's word. So again, we say that, and yeah, I'm on board with that statement, but the reality is that there's times that I don't take my joy from God's word. There's times where I look like the wicked man then. There's times when I'm not continually day and night meditating on the word of God. That, that fourth point, his thoughts, the features of the wicked man, his thoughts, they're not going to meditate on the word of God. Why would he? Obviously, this is true, and yet sometimes it looks like me. And that's, that's the battle. That's the fight. That's what Pastor Aaron was talking about this morning in this battle that every believer is in to not look like this individual. To look different. To value the word. To love the word. To choose friends wisely. To live righteously. So we jump through that very quickly, and that brings us to the wicked man who does not live as the righteous man also has a determined fate. First, his value. His value. Look to verse 4. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Chaff is... Chaff is a, uh, a, a husk or a covering around a seed. It's generally associated to be completely worthless. Biblical terminology is separating the wheat from the, from the chaff. When you drop the wheat into the wind and the chaff blows away because it's light, because it has no value, and the wheat drops. Chaff inherently has no value. It's worthless. So when the psalmist then writes that the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind blows away, what he's arguing for is the inherent value of the unbeliever to God, that they are worthless, they have no value, there's, there's nothing desirable there to God. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. You look at the contrast in the agricultural imagery here. Remember, the righteous man defined as a tree, firmly planted, by a river. Like the righteous man is not going anywhere. Wicked man, chaff. Worthless. No value from a spiritual point of view. So he looks at his value. The wicked man has no value to God. He is worthless. And because of that, the second point under his fate is condemnation. 
condemnation. Verse 5, therefore, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. It's interesting that the psalmist brings the judgment into view at this point. Because so far in this psalm, you could have come to the conclusion that everything that he's been talking about is going to manifest itself here on this earth. You read through the description of the righteous man, the blessing seemingly would take place here on this earth, but you get to the wicked man, and as he looks at the fate of the wicked man, which he's contrasting with the, with the righteous man, the wicked man's fate is that of eternal judgment. The wicked will not stand in the judgment. When that judgment day comes, as the psalmist looks forward to this coming day of impending judgment, when that day comes, the one who is not righteous falls. Does not stand in the day of judgment. He doesn't make it. He is condemned at that point. The implication then is that because that, if that is his fate, that's ultimately what's coming. The implication is that for the wicked man, for the one who is unrighteous, there may be times where like they're not immediately suffering because of their sin. The reward and the penalty that's looked at in this psalm ultimately is going to manifest itself in eternity. After this life. Now, certainly true, there God blesses obedience, punishes disobedience, and that manifests itself in different ways in our lives. I think the ultimate focus of this psalm and what you're gonna see as you read throughout the psalms is that judgment is coming. And that is ultimately where the unbeliever, one who doesn't follow God, the one who is not righteous, That is ultimately where their fate is pointing them. Worthlessness, condemnation, and third, separation. Separation. Last line in verse five. Nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. Let's read that whole verse. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The psalmist looks forward to a coming assembly of righteous individuals. Really interesting. Right alongside of the judgment. Sinners will not stand in the assembly of the righteous. They won't be there. Just as they are chaff which is blown away by the wind, they will not be present on that day when there is an assembly of the righteous that the psalmist is looking forward to. So all of that then leads to verse six. Verse six, we we could say this is the entire psalm in one verse. This is the conclusion. This is what he's saying. This is his main point. Four, the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. God knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The conclusion that this psalm comes to is almost just this piece of information to tuck into our minds 
God knows the way of the righteous. This battle, this fight against sin, this struggle to be meditating and delighting in the word of God, God knows the way of the righteous. And though it may be tempting at times, like the way of the wicked will perish. Remember that. There's no hope. There's no light at the end of that tunnel. The way of the wicked will perish. This is what is going to happen. So, so take hope. Child of God, take hope. Because God knows the way of the righteous. Press on. God knows the way of the righteous. Live, live righteously. God knows that way. Meditate on his word. Delight in his word. God knows. He knows the way of the righteous. But ultimately, ultimately, this song centers on being blessed. That's, that's, that's a valid desire, a valid question. How can I be blessed? How can that define me? How can that be me? I have to take note that it is a misunderstanding of this psalm, I believe, to say that if you follow these steps, you will be blessed. If you watch out who you spend your time with, if you do not live as a sinner, if you delight in the law of the Lord, and if you meditate day and night, like this is not some idea of working your way to blessing. There's no way to do this. There's no way to do verses one and two if you are not under the grace of God. Like no natural man can delight in the word of God. It can't be done. It's unnatural. As a born-again believer, I still struggle with that. It's not a natural thing to be able to do that. So, so how, how do I be blessed? How do I get there? How do I get to this blessing that's happening in verse 3? How do I avoid this punishment, this curse that's happening in verse 5? The only way to be there is through Christ. The only way to be blessed, as the psalmist talks about blessing, is through Christ. And by his grace, by his grace alone, think of this, we can be blessed by God. Eternally blessed by God. We can avoid the condemnation and the judgment and the punishment and the worthlessness that is associated with our natural wicked state through Christ. Let's pray. God, it is, it is challenging to live a life that is continually glorifying to you. It's, it's difficult to continually meditate on your word, to delight in your word. But I pray that as we've looked at these features of the righteous and the wicked man, Lord, that these would define who we are because, because of what you've done in us. As we examine the life of the wicked man and ultimately their fate, I pray that we would be driven to share the gospel, that we would be driven to bring them under the blessing that is given to the righteous. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.